Scripture this morning is going to be found in Matthew chapter 25, picking up in verse 31. Next week is the first Sunday of Advent, which I'm sure all of us are looking forward to, which also means that this Sunday is the last Sunday of the church year, the church calendar, if you follow that. So we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew ever since I got here in April, and so we finish that up today with our final passage out of Matthew before we start the, the, new, uh, the new calendar next Sunday with Advent. Uh, I'm excited for that. So Matthew uh, 25, beginning in thir- verse 31, is where we're going to be in just a moment. Happened across a uh, video this week, and the video was describing the process. Someone had uh, claimed to have an authentic Jackson Pollock painting, a, a famous painter who you may have heard of um, in the uh, like 1930s, 1940s kind of era. His pieces are often worth millions of dollars, and so someone said that they had one of his paintings, and then it needs to, of course, go through this authentication process, because if it is a genuine Pollock painting, it's worth a tremendous amount of money, and if it's a fake, it It may still have some value, but not nearly as much. And it was a fascinating video, especially as they got into all of the sort of modern technology and ways we have to authenticate paintings. Uh, There was this one tool they had. It looked like one of the price scanner guns at the grocery store, except it was like a a radioactive X-ray kind of thing, and they just basically were able to take readings from the painting. And they were able to discover that there was titanium in the white pigments and in the white paint. And so that told them that the painting was probably made at least in the 30s and 40s and it lined up with the timeline. And, and then there were all of these other things that they did, which we won't get into, but it was incredibly impressive and interesting. Now, of course, before they get to that and they spend the thousands and thousands of dollars on the equipment and the expertise and the forensic experts, there's a number of other things that they look at things that we've used for for decades and centuries to authenticate art. They look at the use of color and the use of style and the way the painting was put together. And art experts, which I am not an art expert, art experts can look at a painting and, and tell who painted it, or at least who someone is trying to impersonate and whether they're impersonating them. And if we look throughout art history, you see this all over the place. And even if you are not in, and I know we have a couple painters in here, and my apologies if I say anything wrong, I don't claim to be a paint expert. But if you look at art throughout history, even if you've just maybe taken art in high school, there are there are artists that you will recognize. And maybe you can't even put your finger on it, but for For instance, uh, the great Leonardo da Vinci. You can probably guess and and recognize one of his paintings, not only because it's famous like the Mona Lisa, but even if you saw another one. And da Vinci, for instance, had this technique called smumatu, which is a really hard word to say. Uh, But it's this idea that he would paint with almost completely clear, opaque paints that were so watered down that they almost did nothing, and he would do layer after layer after layer to give this kind of smooth transition and effect. Oh, do we not dismiss kids? Kids, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome for half an art lesson. 
whoever said that, no, you cannot. Your voice was very deep, whoever just said, I'm a kid, can I leave? <laughs> so it's this technique that would add shade and color, and, and you could probably recognize a Van Gogh, and he used this impasto technique where he would put just huge clumps of paint and his use of color. Picasso, you could probably guess by the way he puts things together. Rembrandt used this high contrast of light and shadow. Monet captured the beauty of light like no one else had. All of these artists had a specific way that they painted, and an expert could look at the details and the brush strokes and tell you with a good degree of certainty whether or not a painting was authentic, because they recognize the technique of the master artist in the painting. Now, if you know me, you know that that could just be that I saw an interesting video on art this week and felt that everyone needed to know about it, but it does in this instance tie into the message. Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink. And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry. And you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. And I was in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer him, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So this passage follows in this long line of passages in Matthew 25 that we've been looking at, each one giving us a different piece of the puzzle, a different part of the image of what the coming kingdom of God will look like. And this particular passage answers, at least in part, the question of how does he decide? How, what is the criteria that God uses to, to determine who will enter into heaven, who will be resurrected into eternal life with the Father, and who will not? How does God distinguish between those two 
groups of people. And this is a passage that is beyond even the church. It's made its way into so much popular and secular understanding. This passage of the separating of the sheep and the goats. And so what I want to do today is just unpack this a little bit, look at perhaps some of the assumptions we may be bringing into the text and get a better idea of what we should expect when one day we stand before our king. Now, the first thing that stands out to me about this passage, and again, this is not the only passage, this is not the only text that, that deals with what heaven will look like or, or how we will be asked to give account. However, what's interesting to me is that in this particular passage, we actually don't give an account. And we often use language, especially in the church, that, that of, of things like, one day I will stand before my creator and give an account of my life. But that's not this passage. And I don't, know, I don't know about you, but I read that into this passage. And it wasn't until I read it a few times this week, I realized that I was changing the story in my head. Because in this passage, as Jesus separates these two groups of people, he doesn't ask them anything. He doesn't ask them to give an account. He doesn't say, tell me, give me examples of when you did this and receive information. In fact, he does the opposite. He gives information. And the unifying characteristic of the two groups is that what Jesus identifies in their life is news to both of them. Both groups receive a revelation about themselves that they were not aware of. That when Jesus is talking to the sheep, he doesn't say, you did this and this and this, and they say, oh yeah, I did do that. I'm glad you noticed it. They don't say, oh yeah, I, re I remember that. I'm glad it counted for something. They have no idea what he's talking about. And likewise, the goats, when he says that they failed to meet the expectation, they didn't say, ah, oh, I knew I should have helped that person. They didn't say, oh, I knew, I thought I had enough to balance that out, but... See, he didn't, with the goats, expose their deep, dark sin secret, the thing that was hidden, the thing that they did wrong, the, the one big bad thing from their life. And, and with the sheep, he didn't recognize any of the things that they did intentionally, thinking it would please the Father and the Son. It was news to all of them. And I think that we can really get stuck in that, right? That, that thought that one day we're going to have to give an account, and so we begin to have this little checklist, this, this, this log in our brain of all of these good things, and we think about our life, and we think about, well, am I doing good enough? Am I sacrificing enough? Am I putting others first enough? Am I doing this or that enough to make it? And we read this passage, and if we... If we bring in things from the culture, even some things from church tradition, we begin to add a lot to this that just isn't there. I think another mistake we make is we are already, perhaps, 
I know at least I've been guilty of this. When we think about that day that we stand before God, I think sometimes we imagine that we're going to walk up and we're so ready for this question. I think a lot of us as believers spend our lives keeping that mental log of, oh, I just visited a sick person. That's going to come in handy someday. And I just gave that guy some clothes. And I just wrote a letter to that person in prison or went and saw that person. And, and I provided food. for. And, and we go down the list. I think we're going to be really, really surprised, even if everything about this story is, is, is literal, even if we do go up, even if we are in a group and he's separate, and, and even if the, the, the picture is exactly the same, which is not necessarily true, but if it is, I think we're going to be very surprised when we get to the front of that line. And the statement Jesus makes or the question he asks, however you want to picture it, is something completely different than what we see here. And that makes sense when I think about it, but also that was a big confrontation to my understanding. I realized that I instinctively just believed this will be the exact question. But what we realize is that in the passage, the unifying characteristic is that both the sheep and the goats had no idea that this was the criteria. They're so surprised, they have no information, they weren't even paying attention to these things that Jesus brings forth to discuss. So we can spend our whole lives keeping a tally of all the hungry that we feed, all the sick that we visit, all the naked that we clothe. Do you ever go to take a test that you were up all night studying for and you realize you studied the wrong material? Has anybody ever had that? You get there and you realize, I know all sorts of stuff that is useless for this exam. And you almost want to start writing the answers to the questions that you studied for on the end of it so you te- your teacher knows that you are actually smart, even if you still fail. But it's so frustrating to think, ah, all of this work that I did wasn't, wasn't right. It was without purpose. And if we spend our whole lives just trying to check off these particular boxes, I think we're going to be we're going to be surprised. Because Jesus came to fulfill the law, not just give us new ones. He came to take away the checklist and do something different. So then I wonder, what is that difference and how does it apply to this? And also, how does that work? Because it sort of seems in this passage, depending on how you read it, that it kind of is a checklist, that there are these criteria, and maybe they're different from this when we actually get there, right? Like this is like a practice test that gives you an idea of what to study, but the actual questions are different. That seems a lot like earning our way into heaven, which is not something that we really believe in. We don't believe that we have to do enough good things. It's by the blood of Christ that we are allowed entrance, and, and it's his sacrifice that paves the way. And it's not because of what we do, but then how do we understand this passage? If it's not just a checklist of things that we are supposed to do, what 
on earth is it? As I prayed about that this week, I realized that this isn't this isn't a, 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 a passage that's talking about a test to see if we're good enough. This is a test of authentication. It's a test to see whose work we are. Because you see, if you were cleaning out your grandmother's attic and you found this square box wrapped up with old, old, old paper and you opened it up and you saw a painting inside and you suspected that it might be from one of those masters that I mentioned earlier. That maybe it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Someone's grandmother or great-grandmother got a Jackson Pollock painting right after he painted it when it wasn't worth millions of dollars and someone didn't like it, so they put it in the attic. It really wouldn't matter what people's opinions of that painting were. And the, if you brought that painting to an art dealer, the discussion that would go on would not be about whether or not that painting was of good quality or if they liked it. The discussion would be who painted it. That is what would be most significant. Is it authentic or not? Was it painted by the hand of the master painter, or was it simply an imitation and a forgery? And that is exactly what is happening in this passage. That the sheep and the goats, as they stand before the sun, it's not a question of how good were you. It's not a question of how big a home you're going to get, how much honor you're going to get, it's not a question of who did more or less or, or where you fall on this spectrum. It's a question, and we should know this because he talks about sheep and goats. It's a question of identity. He could have told this parable. He could have given this image all with the same type of animal and, and those the animals that were sick or deformed, or blemished, went on the left, and those that were healthy and beautiful and perfect went on the right. And it was a matter of, of perfection or not. It was a matter of quality. But that's not the image he gives. There are distinct differences between the two. The identity is different. So a sick sheep gets in, and a healthy goat does not. Now, I could paint a painting, hypothetically, I couldn't really, but hypothetically, I could paint a painting that by every objective metric and standard was better than one of Jackson Pollock's worst paintings, just objectively, better use of color, more creative, more imaginative, in every way, it could be of higher quality as art. 
it would still be worth nothing compared to the Pollock. Because I'm not a famous painter. My work doesn't have that value. And so the authentic Pollock, even if it was hideous to look at and mine was beautiful, would sell for tens and hundreds and thousands of times more because of the value given it by its artist, by its creator. And so ultimately what Jesus is doing in this passage and separating the goats from the sheep is he's looking at people and he's saying this, when I look at your life, do I see my brushstrokes? He says, when I look at your life, do I see my use of color, my technique, my style? Or do I see something altogether? And just like in real art, forgeries don't count. And there are forgeries that are so good that, that you can look at the brushstrokes and they look the same. And you can look at the colors and they look the same. And you can use the fancy little gun thing and, and tell that the pigments were made in the right era. But eventually it will be discovered. There will be something that gives it away that it is a fake. And even if in every way a painting is a replica of an original, even if it's identical to every measure and every instrument, if it is discovered to be a fake, it is worth almost nothing. So we can imitate the Christian lifestyle very, very well. There are plenty of people that can imitate the Christian lifestyle very, very well. But that's not what it's about. And that's not what this passage is about. Ultimately, this passage is simply Jesus looking at us and saying, Are you mine? Are you mine? When you began to trust in me, did you really trust in me to come into your life and begin to shape you into who I created you to be? Now, I talk about balance a lot. And if you're new, this will be the first time. I talk about balance a lot. And we cannot understand any truth without understanding different sides of it. Everything in life is a balance, right? The perfect temperature is a balance of too hot and too cold. The perfect food is a balance of too salty and too sweet. Balance. This passage is balanced by the thief on the cross, right? So, so we, can't, we can't hear this passage. We can't determine everything using only this passage. This You have the thief on the cross, and we have this passage. The thief on the cross had only moments after putting his faith in Jesus until he died, relatively speaking. So this isn't about how much paint does he get on your canvas, right? This is, again, it's not about about quantity. It's not about how good. It's not about, it's about 
you, does your life have evidence of Jesus as the artist? And in reality, we actually see that in the thief on the cross, right? Because as he puts his faith in Jesus, we see a man who is, is dying in excruciating death, not ridiculing Jesus. We see him having peace. And to be able to hang on a cross and suffocate to death and be at peace is absolutely a brushstroke of Christ. And so there may only be that one. Maybe when that thief is standing before Jesus and the end, he is a giant blank white canvas with one just strip of blue down the middle. But Jesus looks at that and he says, that is mine. It's simple. It's small. But that's mine. So it's not about how much we do. It's not about the decisions that we make. And in fact, if we learn anything from this passage, even if it is as literal as this passage makes it appear that we stand before him, what he's going to look at, it's going to be something that you don't expect. It's going to be a criteria that you weren't paying attention to. And ultimately, it has to be, right? For us to be authentic believers, it has to be something that we weren't ready for. Because that is the evidence of authentic change in our lives. Now, there's plenty of things that God calls us to that we say, I've been praying about this and feel God's calling me to to start doing this better or treat this type of person better or respond better in this situation like that or with, with my, you know, whatever. That does happen. But ultimately... When God truly changes us, not when we're following the list, not when we're trying to just do better and be better, when God truly changes us, we stop seeing it. We stop seeing, oh man, that person was really rude to me and I did not yell and throw a can of peas at them in the grocery store. We stop seeing it. It just becomes who we are. See, every single one of you has the potential to become a beautiful work of art. And God made you for that. He created you for that. He created you with gifts and talents and abilities. There is so much goodness in you that is ready to be brought to life in ways that none of us can even imagine. And so ultimately at the end, the only thing that matters is if we bear the marks of our king and master artist. Do we look like he painted us? We don't have to try to do it. We don't have to work at it any more than a canvas has to grit its teeth to become a painting. It's just availability. It's being available and saying, God, make me whatever you want me to be. This is our last 
Our last message before we enter into Advent, before we begin to celebrate the entrance of God into humanity. We'll continue talking about things like this, what it means for him to come into humanity now and today through his church, and ultimately it culminates with the celebration of him stepping out of heaven to walk the earth as a human, taking our broken world upon himself. Our closing message, our closing thought for this year of Scripture is this. Do you bear the marks of the master artist? Maybe that's a process you've never started. Maybe that's, it's something that you've never heard of. Maybe you spent a lot of your life feeling like you're never going to do enough or trying to do enough. Maybe you've been in the church for decades. And you're recognizing this morning that there's still areas where you're just trying to answer the questions. As we close in prayer, as we close in prayer, I invite you to open yourself up to both of those possibilities. To open yourself up to whether God wants to do something new in your life. I'm going to ask Sandy to come. We're just going to close with a couple minutes in prayer. If there's something that you need to let go of, as we enter this Christmas season where there's all sorts of opportunities for doing, there's opportunities for busyness, for, for work, for striving, if you need to let go of some questions that you're trying to answer, if you need God to begin working in you more organically as an artist and less as just a boss telling you what to do, I invite you to come to the front, kneel at the altar, and leave that here. It's a lot of imagery for the altar and, and why we do this thing, why we come forward, why do we kneel, why do we come to the front. It's not just to show everybody how many people are praying or anything like that. It's The action of standing up and saying, I'm going to do something about this issue in my life. And then you come forward and you leave it here. Leave it on the altar. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. If you feel led, I invite you to come. I invite you to pray. And allow him to do something new in your life. Jesus, we, uh, when we're honest, Lord, there's, there's days I'm so terrified that you are going to have the list of things that I've done. There are days when I'm terrified, Lord, that when I stand before you someday, you're going to have that file open in your hand. 
But Lord, your plan for your church was never just a bunch of people doing the rules really, really well. That was the broken system that you came into when you were born into this earth, the broken system of people who were just really, really good at following the rules, who missed so much of who you are and what your character is. And so, Lord, we as a church this morning want to turn ourselves over to you, create in us something new. Make our lives a beautiful display of peace, of love, of compassion. May the changes that you make in us be unmistakable. May the changes that you make in us benefit those around us. May we bring love and peace and joy to those that we encounter. Let us shake off the fear and the guilt that we're not doing enough. Let us shake off the idea that there's any amount of performance. That will do anything to earn our place. But let us simply take a deep breath, receive your peace, and allow you to work in our lives. We thank you for all that you've done, all that you continue to do in our lives. This Advent season, may we look for you to come and show up in our lives May we look for opportunities to be your presence and purpose and your action in the lives of others. May we be your hands and feet. And all that we do, may we be animated by your spirit, by your power, and by your love. Amen.